Okay. Fate or Chance Part 8, and we are finally going to get to Fate and Chance today. Thus far, in this series on Romans, I've preached in an expository fashion, going verse by verse, excuse me, uh, through each chapter, right? That's what we've done so far. Also, having followed the opinion of many mainline and well-respected theologians, I have suggested that we view Romans chapters 9 through 11 as they do, as those theologians do, by viewing those chapters as one block of continuous thought, so to speak, thereby conveying key theological truths within those three chapters that pertain to God's character and to, and this is the most important part, to the book of Romans as a whole. With that said, we are going to delve into some of those key theological truths that are so often concentrated on in Romans chapters 9 through 11 by pastors of the Reformed tradition like us, but are typically ignored by pastors of the Arminian position because the truths found therein are very problematic for the Arminian since these chapters point to the doctrine of election and God's complete sovereignty over the salvation of men. As I was preparing this, I thought about a weekly Wednesday night Bible study that I attended years ago at a different church. And the pastor, the senior pastor, was teaching in the main sanctuary. He had the biggest crowd in the building of all the Bible studies going on that night. And he was teaching through the book of Romans. And he was doing an expository study through each verse and each chapter. And my friend and I were excited because we knew that the following week he was going to start Romans 9. So we got there and pastor got up in the pulpit and he just went right to Romans 10 and completely ignored Romans 9. Never said a word about it. Never said boo. He just completely ignored it. So I say that to say this. There is a real push and shove here that goes on between Reformed people of the Reformed ilk like you and people who are Arminians. So, and, and today, especially semi-Pelagians. Yet, yet these are foundational doctrines and as such, they must not only be tackled, but they also must be taught in such a way that everyone can understand them. And so that's what we will endeavor to continue doing this morning. And we will do so not only so that we can understand the character of God, but also so we can use this knowledge for the purpose of evangelizing the lost. Keep that on the front burner of your mind. Now, before we can make a case for and expand upon the sovereignty of God, we must be able to make a case for the existence of God. 
before we can make a case for the existence of God and his sovereignty, we must first make a case for absolute truth. So there's God's existence, God's sovereignty, absolute truth. In other words, if we live by moral relativity, where we are governed by nothing more than the conflicting opinions of other people and what fancy they or what they may fancy as right and wrong, then we will have no need for absolute truth. Now, just to define briefly moral relativity, when I say moral relativity, I mean this. Whatever this attitude, whatever is true for me may not be true for you, and that's okay as long as I don't infringe upon your beliefs and you don't infringe upon my beliefs. And as long as my beliefs don't hurt you, And your beliefs don't hurt me. But you know as well as I do that we always infringe on each other's beliefs. And so it's very difficult to be morally relative. But in the end, it's either going to be their idea of the truth or God's idea of the truth that will prevail. And God's Truth is absolute. It's not relative. Please listen carefully. If God's truth and man's truth oppose each other in definition and in practice, then one of them, either God or man, is wrong. They can't Both be right if they are in opposition to one another. Please allow me to give you an example. If God says in his word that a woman who wears men's clothing or a man who wears woman's clothing is detestable in his eyes, in the eyes of the Lord, like It does indeed say in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. If man calls that practice right and he calls it good and true because that man is simply identifying as a woman and expressing himself as a woman, even though his biological makeup is that of a man, they can't both be right. That person and God, that person and God's word. They're in opposition to each other. God and man can't both be right. So, because of God and man's respective actions, and because, of, because their, their respective actions are at times so vastly different that one can easily label them as opposed to one another in thought, practice, and consequence. I want you to remember those three words, thought, practice, and consequence. That's that's where they're opposed to one another. Please remember, okay, we'll come back to that later. I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. 
Let's do this. Turn to uh, John chapter 18. Which is where we were with the reading. Beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Hey, you, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answers and says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What what did you do? What have you done to make them do such a thing? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, What is truth? Many people are still asking that question today. What is truth? Today in our our current culture, everyone seems to have an opinion as to what's right and what's wrong, as to what is true and what is false in thought, practice, and consequence. In fact, many people in our society don't believe in right and wrong at all at least not from the traditional sense. Instead, they believe in what's appropriate and inappropriate. There's a difference. And guess who defines what is appropriate and inappropriate? They do. They do. They tell you what you should believe, and if you don't agree with them, well, then you could be labeled by anything that they choose to label you with. You could be a Christian bigot. You could be a racist, a right-wing radical conservative. And right now in our society, a very old label has been revived and it's being used by progressive liberals. And that is the label of white supremacist. They've dug that one up. Moral absolutes in our society, moral absolutes that have been the predominant standard for right and wrong over the past 200 years in this country now have been completely eradicated and replaced with conflicting opinions that are being peddled to us and our kids as truth. Am I wrong? And those with the loudest voice and the most money, okay, and the blatantly false narrative typically are the ones that win. They win the audience. And as such, they get what they deem to be appropriate and inappropriate, which they want you to call the new moral absolute. 
Now, how do we communicate, we Christians? How do we communicate the unchanging truths and moral absolutes of Christianity to a culture that is ever-changing its view of morality? One more time. How do we communicate the unchanging truths and moral absolutes of Christianity to a culture that is ever-changing its view of morality? Christianity, folks, is based on moral absolutes. Period. The gospel message is an absolute. Repentance and forgiveness, forgiveness and eternal life, they are necessary absolutes that mobilize the very gospel message. That's what makes it the good news, right? Without the truths of repentance and forgiveness, you have no gospel at all, none. If everyone has a different opinion as to what's right and wrong, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, how are we going to know what to repent of? How are they going to know what sin is when sin is an opinion based upon what someone feels? How are they going to know that, or how, how should I say, how are they going to know what the moral absolutes of Christianity are when there are so many people bombarding them every day with moral relativity. And many of these people who are destroying moral absolutes of the moral absolutes of Christianity, they're calling themselves Christians. They claim to be Christians. They are parading and prancing around as Christians. Church, we are called to combat this. We are not just called to shine a light on it. We are called to fight it. And if you sit around, not looking at anybody, if you sit around and do nothing, you're part of the problem. Does this sound familiar? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Second Timothy 4.2. The book of Romans is clear. God exists and he is sovereign over everything, including good and evil. God exists and he is a God of moral absolutes. He is the God of right and wrong, good and bad. And he clearly defines what they are in his word, clearly. When I started out in ministry, it was very common to encounter people who wanted to twist and manipulate the scriptures. But it was not common to run up on very many people who did not believe in the existence of a supreme being. That was not common. There were some out there, but not many. Today, we encounter both, often. And those who do not believe in God 
in the existence of God are multiplying very quickly. And these people are leading Christians astray. They're doing so at a very alarming rate. I mean, look at all the, the popular celebrity pastors who have recently resigned and say they don't believe in God anymore. So the lines between right and wrong, my point is, are becoming more and more blurry with each passing day. But our God reigns and he sits on the throne. Psalm 47, verse 8. He's in control of everything. Even the woke crowd, even the rewritten textbooks that are pushed on our children and grandchildren in school, his commandment to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations still stands. It is becoming very obvious that we need, Christians, we need to change our game plan as to how we are going to approach this combat. The enemy is using a different toolbox as of late. He's used these tools before at different times in history. They're not new tools. And we have what's necessary to combat him but we need to shift gears and change our tactics a little bit, I think. It's difficult to preach the gospel to someone with effective results when they claim that God doesn't exist. These people not only want to strip God of his sovereignty, but they want to strip him of his existence or the possibility even of his existence. When trying to reason with these people, one cannot begin right out of the chute with the Bible. Why? Because they don't believe the Bible. They think it's a fairy tale. Or as someone said to me recently, everybody interprets it a different way. So why should I read it? They don't even believe God exists. And they might humor you and concede that God might exist, but that's about all they're willing to give you in conversation. Therefore, we need to start at the very beginning with them. We need to make a case, a solid case for the existence of God. We need to make a solid case for moral absolutes in order to show them that everything is not relative and that decisions have consequences and those consequences largely determine what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. And as you know, I've called this series Fate or Chance. You're about to find out why I called it that over the next few weeks, beginning this morning. I've been telling you over and over again that I would tie this all together. 
Paul's epistle to the Romans, God's sovereignty, the problem of evil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm I'm going to go ahead and and do that, teach that. But I first need to cover the ground of how we are to make a solid case for God's existence and His sovereignty. I'm also going to attempt to make a good case for moral absolutes and the existence of right and wrong and good and bad and true and untrue. And I'm going to do this. This is the most important part, folks. I'm going to do it on their turf. Those that we evangelize, their turf. As I said before, many people do not want to hear you quote the Bible to them. They shut down the moment that you start on the Bible or mention the word Bible. Many of them will not listen to an argument for the existence of God if you make that argument from Scripture. They just won't. We must learn how to make an effective argument for the existence of God from a philosophical standpoint that they will listen to. And folks, it's not hard to do. It really isn't, as you'll see in a moment. We need to learn, as Christians, to make an effective argument for moral absolutes from a philosophical standpoint because that's what they will listen to. That's where they will meet us. That's the inroad. We have logic. We have science. We have archaeology. We have all these tools in our God-given toolbox. And frankly, we don't use them. I've been doing this a while, and what I'm about to share with you works. It works. I've led people to the Lord, or, or, or should I say the Lord has drawn his elect to his son through these classical apologetic methods many times. I've, I've seen the light bulb go off in their minds. Uh, it's a blessing and a privilege to be a part of when the Holy Spirit works through reason to turn the light bulb on in somebody's mind. God uses these things to save his elect. And I don't know of a more pertinent time than right now to learn these things so that we can effectively share the gospel through them. And of course, it goes without saying, we will continue to talk about these things in the weeks to come as we work through the rest of Romans. And by the time we are through with the book of Romans, these things, I pray, will be second nature to you. Because like I said, these things are not difficult. Some of the things that I'll talk about may be foreign to a lot of people, but they're not hard to understand. I've seen high school students understand them completely. And I've seen high school students come to Christ through these arguments. Remember, we're making a case for the existence of God. We're making a case for his sovereignty over everything. And we're making a case for moral absolutes. And we are doing so on the turf of those who may not believe in God 
or believe in his word. That's the ground we're on. Now I've done, what I'm about to do, I've done at Abiding Grace Church only one time, and it was the Reader's Digest version. It was on a, on a Wednesday night, at a Wednesday night Bible study where I think there were six or seven people present. So it's going to be new to most of you. Certainly won't be new to you, Steve, because uh, Steve's seen me do it on college campuses. But um, I just want to give you the gist, Okay. If you are going to meet someone on their turf who doesn't want to talk about the Bible and you want to meet them on a philosophical turf where you can use reason and logic, this is the way I would go about doing it. And you don't necessarily have to do it word for word, verbatim, for, for what I'm peddling up here, okay? You just need to get the gist of it and you need to tailor it to those people that you're speaking to because you know where they are from talking to them. Tailor it to their needs and to where they are in their life and use these arguments. You'll make more headway than you would make if you were to just say, well, we believe that because the Bible says it's true. Okay, so if I were talking to someone that fit these parameters and we were to sit down and we were to get philosophical and start talking about God, the universe, moral absolutes, moral relativity, is God in control over everything or isn't he? Where does free will fit in? Where is man come in in these things, okay? The first thing I would do is make a case for truth. And then after you make a case for, after I made a case for truth, I'd make a case for God existent, God's existence. And then I would make a case for the gospel from there. Now we're gonna pretend that this is a wooden chair because it works better than a metal chair with the, the demonstration, okay? Now, when when we as people in a civilized society, an industrialized country, okay, when we communicate with each other, we all communicate in a certain way. And pretty much it's the same way. We take what I'm going to call particular truths and we put them into systems of truth. And then we label them with a universal truth. I'm going to explain what I mean. If, if, if we're to walk in here, in this room, we see a bunch of particular truths that take up space and time. They are matter. They're here. They exist. So if I were to come into this room, I would see these particulars, podium, carpeting, exit sign, clock on the wall, American flag, chairs, podium, camera, guitar. These are all true. They're all here. We could see them. And they all take up time and space. But if I'm standing out there in the foyer and I'm talking to you and I tell you that I'm about to go in 
there. I don't say to you, hey, I'm about to go into the podium, chair, carpet, exit sign, door place. That's not how we, we communicate with each other in any society. The way we communicate is we take the particular truths of this room, those things I just named, and we put them into a system of truth and we label it with a universal. So I would say to you if I was out there and I wanted to convey to you or communicate to you that I was going to come in here, I would say I'm going into the room. The, the word room defined is a universal. And if I say I'm going into the room, you know automatically in your mind that the room can, may not all, but can contain an exit sign, a chair, a carpet, a podium, and a guitar. You know that when I say room. So it's the same thing with everything in our language, in our communication. If I'm about to go out and buy a new car, I'm going to go look at cars and I'm going to buy one. I don't say to you, I'm going to go this afternoon, Zach, and I'm going to look at Buicks, Oldsmobiles, Toyotas, Hyundais, Saturns. I don't, I don't talk that way. We don't talk that way. I say to you, I'm going to go, and I use the universal word, I'm going to go look at cars. I'm going to buy a new car. And you know in your mind, if I say I'm going to go buy a new car, it could include Buicks, Oldsmobile, well, I don't make Oldsmobiles anymore, Buicks, Chevys, okay, Toyotas, whatever. And it's the same thing with everything in language. It's how we communicate with each other. We take particulars. We put them into systems of truth. We label them with universals, okay? Now, if I talk to you about a chair, a wooden chair, because it has more particulars, that's why I'm picking a wooden chair. If I talk to you about a wooden chair, I don't take the particular truths of this chair, which would be the legs, the arms, the back, the seat, the rivets, the wood glue, whatever. I don't take the particulars of that chair and tell you or describe to you a chair in that fashion. I just say, do you have a chair for me? I'd like to sit down in a chair. Do you have a seat? Because we've taken that universal, which means to sit down, and we've included in that universal a bunch of different systems of truth that equal a chair in our mind, in our communication, in our society. So whether I'm here in Pleasant Hills, Pennsylvania, okay, or I am in Mombasa, Africa, this is a chair. If I'm in Japan or Hawaii, it's a chair. And what is it? Why is it a chair in people's minds? It's a chair in people's minds because they know, remember I told you to remember consequence, the word consequence? They know that the consequence of sitting in this chair, okay, is going to be that it serves its purpose and it supports me. Now, if I were to take the parts of this chair, let's just take, for example, and say that um, this chair has not been put into a system of truth. It's not put together. It's laying on the floor in parts. 
So, you know, right here we have the back of the chair and over here we have the arms and over here we have the, the wood glue and over here. Okay. Is it a chair? No, it's not a chair because it does not support me. It's not, at least it's not, it's not a good chair because it's not put into a system of truth that equals a chair in Japan and in Hawaii. Okay, with me so far? So, if I were to take the particulars of this chair and I were to lay them out on the floor and just wait, time and chance, time and chance. Years would go by, decades, centuries, time and chance. Would those particulars come together and put themselves into a system of truth that equals a universal truth that we all accept as a chair? No. It would. I can even do like the scientists say. I could put the directions down on how to build this chair right in the midst of all those particular truths. And, and I, can, I, I can even take some heat, a blowtorch maybe, fire it up. And, and put that heat down there in the middle of the particular truths and with the directions and just wait. Time and chance. We'll add fate to the equation. Time and chance and fate. When are those particulars going to come together into a system of truths that we've labeled universally as a chair because the consequence of this thing is that it supports me when I sit in it? The answer is never. It's never going to come together on its own. Why? Because an intelligent designer who is outside the parameter of those particular truths has to step into time and take those particular truths and intelligently put them together into a system of truth that is universally labeled as a chair and has the consequence of supporting me when I sit in it, right? No matter where I go in the world, this is a chair. Now, um, nothing can be being and coming at the same time. Now, what do I mean by that? Nothing can be being and coming at the same time. This can't be a chair and be becoming a chair at the same time. It is either a chair or it isn't a chair. Why? Because nothing is the efficient cause of itself. Something had to move into time and intelligently design that chair and put it together in order for it to universally be accepted as a chair. So nothing is the efficient cause of itself, because nothing can be being and becoming at the same time. It either is or it isn't. It either exists in that universal way that we've labeled in communication, or it has not. Now, given that, let's say that I've come into this building for the first time in my life, and I'm your guest, and I want to sit down. I've had a long journey. And this particular chair has a bad leg that is broken. 
But this chair doesn't. This chair serves its purpose. If I were to sit in it, I, it would support me. So if I were out there and you followed me in and I said, I want to sit down and I went and made a beeline for this chair, you'd say, oh no, no, Mike, don't sit in that chair. That's a bad chair. It has a broken leg. If you sit in it, you're going to fall. You want to sit in this chair over here. This is a good chair because the consequence is it does what I want it to do. So I've just proven to you philosophically, logically, that there is a bad chair and there is a good chair. There is a right chair and there's a wrong chair. The right chair, when you take the individual particular truths of that chair that take up time and space, and you act intelligently upon it, you put it into a system of truth that resembles a chair, and you sit in it, and it supports you, it's a good and right chair. It's a righteous chair, dude, right? But if this one's broken, then it's not a good chair. It's a bad chair. This is the way the universe works, okay? It's not hard to understand. Now, let's talk about causality and, and motion in a chair. Um, let's not use the chair as an example. That's, this time, let, let, let's use, um, let's pretend like my knife is a lighter. My pocket knife is a lighter. And let's pretend like um, this is a piece of paper. Now, let's just say, you know, I want to take this paper from a state of coldness. It's not hot and it's not on fire, right? I want to take it from a state of coldness and I want to change its molecular structure and catch it on fire and make it turn into ashes. Now, if I take my lighter and I light it on fire, I've accomplished that purpose. But could someone who has had no knowledge whatsoever of a lighter, has never seen a lighter, has never used a lighter, has never even heard of a lighter, could that person pick up this lighter and change this paper from hot to cold? I mean, from cold to hot. And the answer is no. 99% of the time. They don't know what a lighter is. They don't know where a lighter comes from. They've never seen one. They don't even know what, it, what, what it's used for. So when you say to them, take that piece of paper and take it from a state of coldness to a state of hotness and turn its molecular structure into ash, they're not going to go looking for a lighter the way you and I are because they don't even know what a lighter is. <coughs> so... The takeaway there is you can't doubt something that you have no knowledge of. You can't doubt that this is a lighter if you don't know what a lighter is. You can't doubt that this is an iPad if you don't know what an iPad is. You have to have the knowledge of what a lighter is and what a lighter does in order to use a lighter and in order to light the paper on fire. Now, the, the person that has a knowledge of what a lighter is and what a lighter does and how to use a lighter has to have a knowledge 
of what's in that lighter and what makes it up and how to work it. And the person that knows how to use that lighter and has a knowledge of what's in it and how to work it, there had to be a person before that who knew something about butane and volatile fuels, which is what makes up the main part of the lighter. And the person before that had to have some kind of knowledge of where to get the butane and where to get the mechanical things that make the lighter make a spark, make a fire, and take the paper from coldness to hotness. And the person before that had to know where to get oil and how to burn off the volatile fuels and bring them to the top and get the butane processed or process the butane. And then there had to be a person before that that knew where to get the iron ore, where to dig for it, drill for it, gather it, transport it, to get it, to make the mechanics of this lighter. And the person before that had to have some type of conceptual thing going on then in their brain on how to build machining equipment to take it to a place where there's iron ore and to drill for those or for that iron ore. And somebody had to have a mechanical makeup and aptitude to do those things all the way back to even the crew. And you can follow it. This is the law, it's not a theory, it's the law of causality and the law of motion. You can follow everything back to an uncaused cause and an unmoved mover. I'll let that sink in for a minute. You could follow everything back logically to an uncaused cause or an unmoved mover. Something, something had to step into time and intelligently cause everything to go into motion or move everything to go into motion. The uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, okay? So with that said, I've just showed you, I've just proven to you that nothing is the efficient cause of itself, first of all. Nothing could be being and becoming at the same time. These things need something to put them into motion, something to cause it all. And that something, we believe by faith that the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover is what? God, right? Now, if you're not a Christian, if I'm talking to you about this and you're not a Christian, I wouldn't be talking to you about this unless you were, okay? Um, I would be making a case for an uncaused cause and making a case for an unmoved mover. That's what I just did. And I would have to say to that person, there's only two belief systems here between you and I, Mr. Atheist, Mr. Agnostic, okay? You either have to believe that the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover was an intelligent being that existed from eternity's past, or you have to believe that matter 
was always present from eternity's past. There's no other choice. Those are your two choices. So then my next question would be, what takes less faith? And what takes more faith? Does it take more faith to believe that the unmoved mover was a mass or a ball of dense matter existing in the universe outside time for all eternity? Does it take more faith to believe in that and that it spontaneously combusted, blew up, and formed this intelligently designed human race? Does it take more faith to believe that or does it take more faith to believe that the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover is God Almighty who existed from eternity's past and who has always been there? Now granted, if I were to be completely honest, I would have to say it takes faith to believe both. Because in our finite minds, we cannot comprehend, nor can we wrap our head around eternity. And we surely can't comprehend or wrap our head around an uncaused cause and an unmoved mover. We don't have what it takes. God has not endowed us with the intelligence to explain that to ourselves in our minds. We have no choice but to believe by faith that either the uncaused cause is God or the uncaused cause is matter that has always been floating around and existed. Now, in addition, I want you to see that, and I know I'm going long. I'll finish up in five minutes. We'll continue it next time. Um, I, wa I want you to see that this translates into this good and bad chair, right and wrong chair, uh, particular truths put into a system of truth. This translates into many different areas of life. And it's the knowledge in these different areas of life that leads to the conclusion. And that conclusion is typically based, like I said before, on consequence. I'll give you an example of what I mean. What do you see when you watch the classic movie, movie channel and you see all the black and white movies from the 30s and the 40s? What is common in each of those movies in the hands and among the actresses and actors? What are they doing? in the 30s and 40s in those movies. They're smoking. When you watch movies from that era, that, that era, that time period, you'll see that smoking was very common and there were many commercials actually that promoted smoking and it was made out to be glamorous by society Hollywood stars were used to sell cigarettes and make them glamorous. Everybody thought at that time that cigarette smoking was okay. Nobody had an opinion that they could prove scientifically or biologically at that time that cigarette smoking 
you know, might knock 25 years off your life. That wasn't even on the radar. So everybody smoked. My parents smoked. Everybody smoked back then. Most everybody. So fast forward a few decades and we acquire more knowledge, right? We acquire more knowledge about the chair. And we find out through that knowledge that cigarette smoking is not that good for you. As a matter of fact, it's not good for you at all. So then what did we do? Because of the consequence of cigarette smoking, cigarette smoking went one day from being right and good to the next day being bad. And it was the consequence and the knowledge that changed our mind. And it's the same with many areas of life, but what I'm trying to get you to see is it's, it's, it's this way with morals too, especially with morals. If, if my daughter, and I could say this because I don't have a daughter, if my daughter were to go to school on Monday and she were to start gossiping about all of her friends and just talking smack on them and slandering them and gossiping about them. How long do you think it would take before she was labeled as a bad person? As a not so nice person? As somebody that isn't good? Probably sometime before lunch. You know, word would travel around that my daughter was a bad, bad person because they had knowledge that she slandered everyone and the consequence was she hurt everybody's feelings. So they label her a bad person. It's the same with the chair. So whether it's morality or whether it's a stupid chair, we see that it's knowledge and consequence that sets these things up in our minds as good, bad, right, wrong. Now, God does this for us, thankfully, in his word. We don't have to second guess what's good and bad and right and wrong. He tells us, and he makes it very clear. Thou shalt not. And then he lays it out. Or thou shalt, and he lays it out. So if I were to talk to someone, I didn't want to wrap this up yet, but I didn't think it was going to take this long, honestly. Um, if I wanted to talk to someone who didn't believe in God or perhaps was an agnostic and didn't know if they believed there was a God, if I was talking to someone who was making very ridiculous claims about morality, they were changing the definitions as they went along as to what's good and what's bad with, reality, with morality. This is where I'd start with them. I would show them that things are good and bad and right and wrong in society, that we've taken um, particular truths and put them into systems of truth, and we've labeled them as universals for a reason, because of the consequence. It's either a good chair or a bad chair based upon whether or not it supports me or I fall on my head. And it's the same thing with morality, I would tell them. 
what you do, how you behave, what you don't do is based upon whether or not it's right or wrong is based upon the consequence of that action. Something as simple as, you know, people have said to me before, well, you know, what about, um, what about AIDS or, or HIV? They'll say something like, um, how does that negatively affect society? And my answer is, well, it drives up healthcare costs in a ridiculous way. And therefore it drives premiums up for individuals and families. And it taxes the healthcare system. Well, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying anybody that has HIV or AIDS is a bad person, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, everything has a consequence. Even something like that, that somebody, most people don't think of, has a consequence. And it's through those consequences that we determine if they're good or bad or right and wrong. And I would, if I was talking to an agnostic, I would point moral examples out to them in society that are also in scripture. And that way I can not only back it up with you know, whether or not the chair supports me or I fall on my head, but I can back it up with scripture because the next thing you're going to do with a person like this that you're talking to is you're going to make a case for the validity of the Bible. And we'll do that another time before we finish Romans. But what I want you to see right now is simply a case can be made for the existence of God. I just made it. A case can be made for moral absolutes, which our opponents say can't. Everything's relative. A case can be made for God's sovereignty over everything. The right chair and the wrong chair, God's sovereign over both. He determines whether or not you sit in the one that supports you or you sit in the one where you fall on your head. And that's what I want you to just get out of this right now here this morning, okay? There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as spontaneity when it comes to things like creating the universe. And there are absolute truths and there are absolute falsehoods and there is good and there is evil and we'll get into that too before we're done. Like I said with Romans, so. Let's pray.